Please pray with me. Father, I ask that this morning that your spirit would enliven us, open our hearts. Let us see the magnitude of what your son has done. Lord, let your spirit be a witness to us in our places of need. And may your spirit empower us to be witnesses to others. Amen. At Pentecost, we celebrate the giving of the Spirit. And you'd be forgiven for thinking that that meant that the Spirit sort of arrived for the first time at Pentecost. The reality is, is that the Spirit has been present since the very beginning of the Scriptures. Think back to the beginning. The Spirit hovering over the waters, shadowing over creation. This is why we call the Spirit in the Creed the Lord and Giver of life. Throughout the Old Testament, the Spirit is there, inspiring prophets, leaping forward at Jesus' baptism. We see the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, anointing Jesus for His ministry, validating His authority. In John 20, after having promised them the Spirit, in John 20, Jesus actually takes the disciples in the upper room and breathes on them and says, receive the Spirit. He gives them the Spirit and the authority to forgive sins. In other words, the disciples have actually already received the Spirit. The Spirit has been present all along. The Spirit does a variety of things throughout the Bible. The Spirit gives life. The Spirit increases love and faith. The Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit in people's lives. According to Jesus in John 14, 15, and 16, the Spirit teaches the disciples in the church, guides them. The Spirit enlivens us, transforms us into the image of Christ. But Pentecost is this unique moment this unique giving of the Spirit, that even though it's in parallel with the gift of the Spirit to the prophets in the Old Testament, it's still distinct. Because at Pentecost, the Spirit who's been present since the beginning, the Spirit who's been given multiple times throughout the Bible, at Pentecost, the Spirit is given to do something very particular. This is a special gift. It's a particular empowerment, and it's for the sake of a particular message. Look in verse 4 of chapter 2. And they all were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This gift of the Spirit is so that the people of God would begin to say particular things. Look in verse 6. Others are bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in their own language. This gift of the Spirit was given so that the disciples would say particular things, but it wasn't just for their sake. The Spirit is given so that they would say things for the sake of others who would understand. Look at the second half of verse 11. 
The people say what they're hearing them say. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The Spirit was given so that the people of God would declare the works of God in a way that others could understand. Look at verses 17 through 18. As Peter begins to explain this, he says, and this is what God had prophesied, that in the last days He would pour out His Spirit so that sons and daughters would prophesy, so that people would see visions and dream dreams, servants and children, old men. In those times, He says, I will pour out My Spirit so that they prophesy. This is a particular gift of the Spirit so that the people of God begin to declare out loud what God is doing. This is a particular moment. And at the end of this quotation in verse 21, Peter explains why God is doing this. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is a particular moment. It's a moment where the Spirit is given so that the people of God declare the works of God in front of a bunch of people so that people would begin to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. It's one that Jesus had already announced ahead of time would happen. In Acts 1.8, the thesis of the whole book, Jesus said to His apostles, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be My witnesses. This is the thesis of the entire book the people of God receiving power to being witnesses for God. This is what they're doing. This is the point of Pentecost. This is what they're doing when they say the mighty works of God, they're being witnesses. And they're being witnesses so that people would call on the name of the Lord and be saved. This witnessing is what Peter proceeds to do in this big sermon that he preaches that results in 3,000 people turning to God. He's being a witness to the mighty works of God. We all know from courtroom dramas that witnesses are called to offer particular narratives. They're called to bring specific details to light. They're called to explain specific things so that the jury or the judge understands. What specific things did they say? What would you say if you were called to be a witness to the mighty works of God? Our tendency is to truncate the message. To say, well, if I'm going to be a witness for the mighty works of God, I might say, your sins can be forgiven in Jesus Christ. We truncate the message. Of course, that message is true. But it's one paragraph, a body paragraph, in a much longer essay. It's not even the thesis. What's the full witness of the mighty works of God? If you read the first few sermons that the apostles deliver, if you listen to their witness, it's actually startling to me how much of the story we actually forget to tell. It's startling to me how much we miss. And we miss it to our own peril but also to the peril of others that we're declaring it to. There is so much more that they declare, and it's the so much more that I want to actually hear this morning. This, in effect, is a summary of their first few sermons, 
a summary of their witnessing. They say, Jesus of Nazareth, he was shown by God through his teaching and his miracles to be the one who would save and judge the world. This is the first point of their narrative. The Jews got that. They have this category called Messiah. He's appointed by God to save and to judge the world. But then they say he suffered first, even though he didn't deserve it. He suffered first because he came to absorb all of the suffering of humanity into himself. He came to take all of the suffering onto his own shoulders. That's what happened on the cross. But they go on because they say that the suffering wasn't the end. The suffering wasn't the end because he then conquers death in the resurrection. And then he's lifted by God in the ascension and seated on the very throne of heaven. He's exalted by the Father in the ascension. And in that moment, when he left the disciples, he actually begins to reign over all things. In this reign, he's actually bringing all spiritual forces into subjugation under his feet. And that reign that was begun that day 2,000 years ago will one day culminate in him coming back, in him restoring the entire cosmos to God. Listen to that moment. They declare this to the people. They're witness that Jesus Christ in the ascension was seated on the throne and in the return all the cosmos will be in harmony with God. At that moment, it will be purged of all evil. And all those who've rejected God will be judged, cut off. Those, who, however, who've actually received him will see the fruit that this whole creation was aiming at. Men and women, children in harmony with God, creation itself in harmony with God. And at the very center of it all, will be Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of this new thing that's happening. He is the one that it's being built on, and he is the one who's building it. But right now, before that time comes, the apostles say that he's waiting. He's waiting. He's waiting so that many would turn and come back to him. He's subduing spiritual enemies, but he's giving men and women and children time so that every single one who desires can repent and be restored, be washed clean and brought into the kingdom of God. This is the opportunity that's given to you. That's the basic summary of the witness they offer. It's not everything they preach, but it's a summary of their witness. It's what the Holy Spirit empowered them to proclaim. I imagine you'll notice that it's significantly more than you can be forgiven of your sins. Of course, that note in the whole symphony is true. But the grand symphony is the story of Jesus Christ absorbing all the suffering into the world into himself, conquering death, conquering the devil, rising to the throne of heaven, bringing people into his family over a long period of time, and one day coming back to purge and to cleanse and to restore. This is the story they tell. We could spend days fleshing out the individual ideas. That's what we do in our sermons. That's what we do in our Bible studies, is try to understand better what does it mean that he absorbed all the suffering of the world into himself? What does it mean that he conquered death? 
What does it mean that one day creation itself will be restored to God? That the physical world and the animals will be in harmony with God? What does it mean that it's not yet restored, that it's groaning right now in corruption and futility, as Paul says in Romans 8? We could spend days fleshing out each of the claims. But my hope today is that you would hear the whole scope of it, the broad story, the large version. I want you to hear today that God is actually still doing something in Jesus Christ. We have a tendency to look back and say He did something in the cross. But God is still doing something today in Jesus Christ. I want you to hear that, that the story is not over. I want you to hear that in His story, He has actually been the faithful human. He's redone all of human history. It's already been done in Jesus. It shouldn't shock us when human history grows awry, when it's a mess, when things break. Jesus has redone it faithfully. I want you to hear that in His death, He's actually already taken all of the suffering into Himself that the world has produced. All of it is already carried in the very heart of Jesus. I want you to hear that in His resurrection, He's already conquered death. He's already conquered the devil. And I want you to hear that in the ascension, He's actually already begun His reign. He is King. One day that reign will culminate in all the enemies of God subjected to Him. But He has already begun His reign. In the scope of this broad story, my life takes on new meaning. In the scope of this broad story, your life takes on new meaning. We tend to think of ourselves as if we are the last chapter in the play. If we don't get it right, the play ends in disaster. Place your life in the broad story. The broad story of what Jesus Christ has done. The broad story of what Jesus Christ is doing. In other words, our failure to live rightly is answered by Jesus' faithfulness in this broad story. Our failure to live rightly isn't the end, the disastrous last chapter of a tragic book. Our lives are not the end of the story. In the scope of this broad story, our suffering is not the last chapter. It actually is accounted for, brought into the heart of Jesus, and dealt with by Jesus. In the scope of this broad story, our captivity to sin, which some days feels like it will never be broken, in the scope of this broad story, our captivity to sin is answered and explained. In the scope of this broad story, the uncertainness of our future, our anxiety over what is to come is answered. My hope this morning is that you see the full scope of what Jesus has done, sort of from a bird's eye view, and you go, oh, in the midst of that, there is my life. And my life is not going to turn this whole thing upside down. My sins are not going to bankrupt the whole system. See yourself in the midst of the magnitude of what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do. 
Because he is, after all, the one who is at work building a new kingdom. This is really good news. He's the one who's actually at work right now. He is the one who is building a new kingdom right now. We don't have to fear our failures because he's the one who's actually at work in our lives. We don't actually have to be overwhelmed by our grief and suffering because it's not the final word on our lives. He is still at work. Our tendency to sin or the fact that we will die is not the final statement about us. Jesus has another word to declare over you beyond even the worst that you have done or will do. One day we will see the entire world. And think for a second what we mean when we see the entire world. One day we will see the entire world and we mean all people. But we also mean the physical creation. We mean political systems, as amazing as that is. We mean the sciences and the arts. One day all of it will be at peace with him. He will purge and cleanse all evil from all of it. And all of it will be in harmony with him. The animals and the world systems of politics and the way that we use arts and the way that we use the sciences and our own souls. One day, Christ will be all in all and all will be in harmony with him. In other words, because of what Jesus has done, because of what he is still doing even this day, and because of what he will do, our lives are secure. There is actually nothing for us to fear. Even in the midst of the mess of things, and even in our failures, our lives are secure. This, by the way, is why the early church could give away its money so readily. Because they saw themselves in the midst of God's greater story. And when they recognized that Jesus is doing something that is cosmic in scope and he has all the power, good gracious, he'll take care of us. They could give away their money so easily because they understood their place in the story. This is why they weren't frightened of persecution. This is why Peter and John, two fishermen with little education, could stand in front of the most powerful and educated men in their country and say, we are not going to obey you. You can't threaten us. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. This is why the old early church could break through ethnic barriers. This was hard for them. The Samaritans, are they really in? This Roman centurion, is he really in? But eventually they got it. If this is this cosmic redemption that Jesus is working on, that means we have to learn to love these people we've hated all of our lives. The grandness of the story transformed them. My hope is that the grandness of the story begins to transform us. So this morning, when we celebrate Pentecost, the giving of the Spirit, my prayer for myself and my prayer for y'all is that the Spirit would witness this story to us that by the Spirit, we would hear the part of the story that we need to hear so that our hearts are woken up again, so that we're set free of a fear again, so that we're delivered from a sin again. And my hope also is that in the gift of that Spirit, we would begin to learn to witness this to others, to say to those who are suffering, your suffering is carried in the heart of Jesus. To say to those who are hopeless, there is a new kingdom being built and you can enter it. 
to say to those who are guilty, sins can be washed away in this kingdom. My prayer is that we would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, learn to witness the full scope of this story to others. Amen.